Welcome back to another episode of Victory Over Self Radio, where we dive into all things athletics. In this episode, Chris, Blair, and myself dive into the basics of DB Hammer, and we break down the foundational things of, of his system, uh, whether it's about auto-regulation, time sets, how you arrange training, that type of stuff. And if you're not familiar with his work, uh, he wrote the best sports training book ever which really changed how we all view training and the lens that we that we view specifically sports training. Excited to dive in this one. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, fellas. On the old docket today, we have the one and only, who is this guy? D.B. Hammer. Uh, so somebody who has influenced a lot of our training, uh, somebody who has a lot of shroud of mystery wrapped around him. Uh, we'll be kind of just overviewing and um, kind of just recapping some of the big takeaways that we have had from his book and from some of his articles and just kind of swapping war stories between ourselves and other coaches. Now, I first started hearing about DB Hammer when we were together and sort of talking about, hey, here's this guy that Chris Corfist talks about and has talked about. And then if you guys remember when we went to RPR level one at William Mary, and uh, Chris Corfus was leading it. We kind of had that Q and A. Blair, you started to ask a few questions to Chris about DB Hammer and uh, a little bit about the the mystery behind him. And uh, I know you have a little research done on that, so maybe we could share some of those stories later. And so we walked away. All right, that was that. And then Blair, uh, you left Liberty, and then you were graciously gifted a PDF copy of. Uh, <laughs> the best sports training book ever. And you sent it down to Ross and I, and we all kind of got into it. And so once that happened, I didn't really jump on the the bandwagon real quick. I I guess I was looking into something else, but Ross, you were kind of the first guy to really dig into the book and start to work on it. Uh, I remember uh, you were in the weight room and kind of going through some of the auto reg stuff and feeling it out during training uh, with, with yourself, not with your athletes yet. So, Russ, just kind of give us an idea of, hey, here's my initial thoughts. Here are the big things that stood out to me uh, when you finally got to read uh, Mr. Hammer's book. Uh, well, I was one, I was really confused because uh, the nice lingo is completely different than what we would ever say <laughs> and then what, what we are used to. So that took a little bit. Uh, I know when point. I first read it, I had to literally make a list of the terms, uh, but Aside from that, um, I mean, the biggest initial takeaways really that anyone gets is going to be the auto-reg auto training, and then it's going to be, for me at least, it's time sets in the, in the energy system brackets. And then from there, I know, Chris, you take a bit from like the static spring model in that, in that deal. Huge. Yeah. Uh, yes. And, yes. and I would say that the, the last big thing for me is the, the ordering of or the let's say the pairing of movements and the pairing of lifts based off of whether strength power power speed and how we pair those up Um, because it is a little contradicting to what a lot of us are told on some things and then otherwise it it does pair well in other things but um yeah i mean it, it it's the one book i do think where i was in the right spot when i was reading it where I was ready to take in that information and it actually made uh, sports performance make sense as a, as a whole. Uh, 
Um, it filled in a lot of gaps of things I might have had questions on. Uh, but it was definitely the one book where I was like, all right, I feel like I kind of have a good good grasp at least on what we're shooting for uh, to improve to improve performance. That's where uh, you and I might differ because when I got my hands on it and graciously shared it with you as it had been shared with me, I read it and I was like, what in the heck is going on? Um, and going down the rabbit trail of, of who is DB Hammer, you read online on different forums from 1998 or whatever, yeah. 2007, <laughs> and everyone's wondering who he is. And like, you know, the people like, yeah, he's just making up words. It's, it's all just synonyms that are just made up. But um, when you can actually dive into it, and I've, I've started diving back into it again now, you can put some good pieces together and it ties things up. Yeah, that's a great point. Like Ross, you touched on it, Blair, you just touched on it. There is a lot of, what's the big fancy word? Is it nomenclature, right? Like a bunch of different, different words. And yeah, you could say synonyms for sure. Such as he calls the eccentric portion plyometric, right? And just, yeah, you really have to, like you said, Ross, develop your own kind of glossary or dictionary to really understand things. But before Ross like hammers it, Blair, talk a little bit more about the the mystery that shrouds him. Uh, what were some of the things that you found as you were trying to find this guy or a little bit more about him? Yeah, DB. Who's DB? Is it Dietrich Buchenholz or is it uh, Brad Nuttall? Who who is it? Some people even think it's Chris Corfist himself, but uh, <laughs> I don't want. <laughs> I have no idea who it is. But you can you can look it up and and there's you know you know speed forums from literally you know 15 20 years ago people are all you know fired up about who this is um i don't know i don't know if it's been uh discovered if the the veil has been lifted yet maybe maybe one day right it's actually uh i was doing digging through google so in in my late 20s i found out how websites actually work and i never knew that you could like hide pages or that links to a page could get buried so if you just google search through elitefts.com or that yeah if you use the search bar on elite fts you won't be able to find any db hammer stuff but if you google db hammer articles elitefts.com then kind of like you could backdoor your way into finding a few of his articles. So it's not just his book. Like there is stuff out there on the internet with him, but you really got to search for it and, and go find it. But with, you know, all that being said, uh, Ross, so very much shared there. I was super confused when I read it too. Uh, and I think you hit the nail on the head perfectly of you you were in the right place at the right time to kind of take in and accept some of those things. So just lightly kind of, you know, tell us a little bit about a reg training and how you started to kind of go in a little into that and then uh, touch on your time sets and the brackets and everything and just kind of explain sort of an overview for us. Yeah. So the getting into auto regu- auto regulatory training doing it myself the 
well, let me go back. I will say that I was also very confused when I first read the book, but then eventually as we tied it in, it all it all made sense. So not to sound mm-hmm. super smart or anything. But nevertheless, when we get getting into the auto rank training and when I was trying it, at least on myself and trying to do uh, his sort of layout, um, one, I found that it took forever, good or bad or indifferent. Like I was, because I was doing drop-offs to... Um, I think it was like 5%, maybe whatever. And, and with the auto reg, auto reg training, you're, you know, you're dropping off a jump, a sprint or whatever it may be. It just depends on what the goal is of the day. And so for me doing the different jumps and whatnot, I would, I would find that I couldn't, it would take so long to drop off. Uh, but I was also doing the big rest intervals between, uh, movements, you know, and if I, was setting up, say I was doing, you know, four movements. And if it was a squat to what, you know, these four other movements and it was two minutes in between each movement. All right. It's going to take eight minutes just to get through one set. And so as you keep going, it's going to take a little while. And so that was for me, that was, uh, I was, I don't want to say frustrating, but it was more like, okay, I know that I can't, uh, realistically, do long rest intervals and things like that uh, for every single movement between uh, sets. Because then the other line, other deal with it, at least when you're going by the book, is you're going to do every single movement until you fail or you drop off on that specific movement. So if, let's say I'm doing, uh, let's say I'm doing back squat, I'm then doing an ab, and then I'm doing split squat, whatever it may be. I can drop out on back squat, but then I'm still doing my, my ab stuff and my split squat. And then I just keep going back and forth. And so it just takes a super long time. If again, if you're doing it by the, if you're doing it by the book. Now, if you do it like we would probably normally do it, uh, you do your normal sets. And then I just base it off my jump to cut everything else. It's a little more uh, realistic to do. So over time, as we're kind of messing with stuff, eventually I, I was trying it with some of our teams at Liberty and not necessarily to the, to the extent of like full blown auto reg, but more just, Hey, between every set, we're just going to jump and we're going to see if you are within X percentage of your, your PR for the day or of your PR. And if you set a new PR then we'll go off of that, but I uh, started to do that and I was just finding, yeah, I'd have I'd have some kids that might go five, four, five sets, but I'd have other kids that might hit ten, and it was mm-hmm. it was just kind of figuring out, okay, what am I going to do logist logistically to be able to do auto reg stuff in the in the weight room, which can be pretty tough, uh, and to be able to kind of control it that way, because um, because when they drop out, I mean, if it took them fifteen minutes, what do you like? Yeah, you could send them home and be done for the day, uh, which me and Chris kind of got into some different thoughts there as far as, okay, when they drop out, are they dropping out because they don't have enough capacity? And then we need to push mm-hmm. uh, that their their volume and their capacity as soon as they drop out. Uh, and that could have been done, you know, one by 20 or aerobic work or whatever it may be, which that was just some different thoughts there. But anyway, so getting that first little introduction was was good. And then as we're training me personally, then getting big time into time sets and getting into the, 
the uh, brackets because with hammer everything's broken down in the time sets basically and your your energy brackets are for him it says zero to nine i'm just going to say zero to ten and then you're going 10 to 40 seconds is your reserve because and then after 40 to 60 to 70 or whatever is your aerobic is at least what's what's broken down in the book and then you can break down your between your reserve your anaerobic reserve is between you have a top and a bottom basically of 10 to 25 and then 25 to 40 is your higher bound of that so i, I very rarely um I shouldn't say rarely. I, w- I would do 25 to 40 seconds because that is just a lot of reps depending on the movement you're doing. But got into that and and we can talk a little more detail. I've kind of been rambling. But as we as I was messing with it, it's like, man, this is the I think it's the best way to train of time sets because it evens out, you know, 10 seconds on a back squat is not the same as 10 seconds on a bench. It's just, there's two totally different animals, you know, and I can assign, if I assign, uh, let's say I assign five reps on a back squat and five reps on a bench, it's going to take me five seconds on a bench and it might take me, you know, 10 to 15 seconds on a squat, depending on the weight and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So you think you're targeting the same thing, but you're not targeting, you're doing two totally different things. That was really well explained with the time sets there good stuff the uh i think the example i saw was like shrugs and curls or something like that because yeah yeah 40 seconds of curls is going to be completely different than 40 seconds of shrugs too just with the 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 movement um but uh that was awesome ross um wordy but awesome yes Yes. Right. Um, like, it's anyways. just, well, like, it's so much there. It's like, what do you, I don't even know where to start, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. I mean, he's wordy, so it's going to be wordy to try and explain what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One of the things, Chris, going back to nomenclature, mm-hmm. he gets into neuro this, neuro that. Like, yeah. everything is neuro something. Um, and that can be confusing. Um, talking about the auto regulate, uh, auto regulatory stuff, Ross in the weight room, um, you're using it for jumps, right? We're looking for the drop off there. What else are you using auto regulatory for? Um, are you on the field with it? Are you using it for lifts as well? Um, because I know in the past using APRE, which is not the same, but similar idea yeah so i haven't the only time i've done the auto reg that way is just through jumps i haven't done it on sprints um i haven't done it any any other way other than jumps now i do for for the lifting side of of auto reg from messing with it i definitely prefer from a practical setting doing apre versus the the time sets uh, personally, because then you're kind of the the way that I like to manage a time set is going to be number of reps in X number of time. So if I am doing 10 seconds on bench, all right, when I get to my working set, whatever, whatever that may be, 
say it's 80%. Okay. And then in 10 seconds, my guys get, let's say five reps. All right. Then I got to keep going to five reps, which can kind of get a little dicey in that 10 seconds, because what I don't want to do is get into a contest of, of guys are, uh, messing up their form. They're not, they're not doing what they're supposed to do, or they're not being honest of whether or not they got a rep. Uh, you know, I was halfway up and then they're going to count it. And that gets kind of hit or miss. Um, I think where it's, where the time sets are most helpful is if I'm doing power work and I'm at a submax weight and I have to maintain the rep count in X number of time, right? So like if I'm doing a three second, four second, five second set and it's submax weight, all right, I should be able to maintain the the reps there pretty easily where if it's strength work, it's a little bit harder to, to do that. And so I definitely prefer from the strength side, the APRE version of it. But no, the only the only time I've done, again, that auto reg where I'm taking out at the whole workout is with, is with jumps. And I just find that that's the easiest for the kids to understand and, and not mess up at the end of the day. Ross, t- touch back on or take us back if you could remember. You mentioned that you're in a good place to kind of accept it. Can you remember what your training looked like prior to getting your hands on this or were you starting to go down the, as Blair just mentioned, the like neuro, the neurological path, were you starting to get away from the older traditional styles of training? Um, Tell us about that. Uh, Honestly, I don't even remember what I was doing before DB Hammer, (laughs) but it was more, uh, I think, I think it was more like the focus, uh, what, you know, what is my reasoning behind what I'm doing? So now everything that I'm doing is going to be based around what is it doing to the nervous system, but also like Mm -hmm. energy system development. All right. Am I, am I trying to work on peak strength? Am I trying to work on capacity? Am I trying to work on aerobic? You know, all of these things versus prior, it was really more, all right, I know I just need to get them really strong. I know that they need to to move fast, but it wasn't, it wasn't from the perspective of, all right, the nervous system is controlling all of that. And that's what I have to kind of focus on and make sure that that's really dialed. I mean, beforehand, I was, it was definitely more, uh, if I could compare it to anything, it was definitely more, uh, like percentage based from like the system with the, the different, uh, Hey, I'm going to hit X number of reps this week, blah, blah, blah. And you're, and you're going about it that way. Um, that would have been the most recent before that. Um, but I've been, I've been so far shifted that I barely remember what I was doing prior, but it was certainly closer to the system percentage based. And I guess to answer your question, as far as being ready to, receive said information is if is by having enough uh general and random information from other coaches and other places whether it's jumping sprinting lifting and you're kind of seeing what what different coaches are doing and what different people are talking about and then once somebody else kind of brings it all together and you've you've heard it in the right spot and then they put it in a nice kind of better way to deliver it it's like okay 
this this makes every bit of sense because again it all led back to sports performance which essentially all led back to uh speed and power development at the end of the day and it's and it's okay is is it lacking because of strength is it lacking because of power is it lacking because of speed like what is that reasoning that our athletes are are suffering but also understanding that they might need to be stronger. They might need to be more powerful. Like we're not going so far away from strength work. Like that's still going to be the foundation of it, but understanding that at the end of the day, the speed and power aspect of athletics is what's going to reign supreme. And this I felt gives you a way more precise way to target that versus me just guessing that, at this percentage, I know I'm hitting speed or at this rep range, I know I'm working strength at this rep range, right? So like the time sets and getting enough volume and all that with auto reg, it just, I don't know. It just made a lot of sense. I've got, uh, two, two questions, one for each of you, if I may. Let's do it. Uh, first, first question, uh, I'll let, let Ross keep rolling here. Um, thank you so much. And, uh, Ross, you're using a, you're using the jump mat, right? Yep. So if you didn't have the jump mat, do you think you would be able to do the same? Would you be able to find a way to keep doing the auto rag with your jumps without the jump mat? And then for Chris, you've got the 1080 mm-hmm. and how are you using that? Yeah. Uh, are you are you looking at drop offs with that? Definitely, yeah. T- take her away here, Ross. So I will preface in that I'm not doing anything auto regulatory at all with my high school kids. Zero. I'm I'm not doing any. Now my thought in that is that one, I don't see them long enough to even need to auto reg them. Like I got a twenty twenty five minute lift. Like they don't they don't need it, and so. Two, I also do think that there is some value with those younger kids that one, they can't produce uh, enough consistent outputs to 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 auto-regulate it. So like a kid, he could jump 22, he could jump 24, then he jumps 21. Like he's really inconsistent and, and it doesn't have his nervous system so dialed up that we're going to be steady with our jumps. And so I just don't trust it. Now, if I didn't have a jump mat then I would I would say I would maybe try to broad jump, but even then you can fake your way to a to a long broad jump and there's so much technique involved in a broad jump that I don't think you could do it per se. Um I think from there you just you would then just have to base it off the lift itself with the time sets and X number of reps and X number of seconds. And you would just have to be really tight with it. Uh, but yeah, if I didn't have the jump mat, I think that's probably, probably what I would do. Yeah. And to answer my part of the question. So I do have a jump mat and a lot of my auto rake training is used through that. Now I really only use auto rake training in the off season, kind of like with Ross there. And like most coaches, I get my athletes twice a week and like, we just got to get work in. And we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And Ross kind of touched on the practicality of when you have an entire team for an hour, 
if one person drops off at set four and another goes to set seven logistically practically like what are they going to do but yeah so i i personally again at the college level use broad jumps for auto reg i use my jump mat for auto reg uh all my jumps all my broad jumps that i do and on the jump mat are hand on hip so it takes away a good bit of the technique and they get pretty dialed in if i sense like ah that was just a bad jump i'll let them go again or give them two chances before i say that they dropped off but yeah i'll i'll use a tape measure and a yardstick and do broad jumps for a reg and then uh, i'll also use my jump mat now on the 1080 mostly i'll look at time and once they start to drop below their pr for the day on the time i just i cut them if they're not running fast something's up but weird enough and this could be maybe a subject for another day i have found that very rarely if ever do i have an athlete that has a good day on the jump mat and sprinting on the same day like Hmm. super weird but uh when people pr in the hallway uh with their sprint on the 1080 they have their worst day on the jump mat and when they do really well on the jump mat, they have their best day sprinting in the hallway. Super weird. And then there's days where they're just crappy at both. But uh, it, it makes me seem like Houdini when they're like, oh, man, I'm doing so bad on the jump mat today. It's like, how, how are your sprints? They're pretty good, though, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that's how I do it with uh, the tools and the time that that I have. Uh, mostly I'm using auto rank during summer when I have a lot less athletes and a lot, lot more time sense yeah so to kind of go back to my question ross of um where were you at before db hammer as you were talking i think we were all sort of on this train of just getting as strong as you possibly can is not necessarily the holy grail for sports performance am i right there were we all kind of getting on that path where it was like huh, my best guys, or excuse me, my strongest players don't play a lot or my biggest dogs in the weight room under this you know, traditional setting that I've set up are not my biggest dogs on the court, on the mat, on the ice, on the field. Am I, am I hitting that right? Uh, I'm, I'm getting older, but I think that's where we were kind of all at. We, we all sort of realized like just getting strong wasn't, the only answer i I think you maybe it it depends at what level you know in high school Mm. you might see more of those like strong kids being being the dogs being the you know the big guns Mm -hmm. um and then as you move up a tier now you're in the college setting you know everybody's good you're you might have been the best at your high school and the strongest well, everyone on your college team is going to be strong. True. And now that skill and the speed is going to be what makes the big difference. That might be my take on that. But That's a good point. Well, and I think like what this did for me is that it then gave each individual athlete exactly what they needed. And 
mm-hmm. you know, versus when you're kind of programming prior, at least my perspective is, yeah, like Chris said, we are trying to just get super, super strong, which is going to look awesome for, you know, 25% of my kids It's going to probably work really well. But then the 75%, it didn't really do anything and nobody's really better. And those 25% of my population loves the program and loves what we do. And then the 75% hates it and doesn't matter. I mean, it's kind of like the the saying of, I'm going to have a group of kids that love what I do. They're going to have a group of kids that don't really care. Then you're going to have a group of kids that hate it. So like there's no matter where you yeah. go. And so this... Yeah, instead of, all right, just strength work. All right, now I got dudes that, great, they're going to excel at being strong. I got some that are going to excel at being powerful and some that are going to excel at, at being fast. And, and Chris, you do a good job of this, of training my best or training my kids to be good at what my best guys are good at on the on the mm-hmm. ice, right? Of kind of seeing... All right, what are what are our best players at? All right, let's figure out how to how to get our guys there. Yeah, that's just copying Tony Holler, right? Your best players yeah. are the cats. Yeah. Gotta gotta feed the cats, basically. Uh yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh one of my last kind of like thoughts or uh comments for you, Ross, is can you dive a little deeper on the time brackets? Like can you give us a an example practically? of what that might look like, or you read the book, you experimented on yourself. How did you start to implement something like that into your workouts? Can you remember, or, uh, is there a good example of what you did a month ago or anything like that? Yes. I think before you think about time sets, you have to think about what are you, what's your goal for the day and how you kind of lay out your weeks. So within the within the book, yeah, it's it's talking about I don't want to pair well, let me go back. We have our speed work, we have our power work, we have our strength work. One is gonna give you a ton of force, one's gonna give us a ton of watts, and one's gonna give us a ton of speed or, or rate coding within the within the muscles. So I don't want my and again, according to the book, I don't want to pair my strength emphasis with also a speed day and my speed work, which goes against uh, contrast training and all that kind of stuff. But the train of thought is that from a nervous system wise, uh, on the strength stuff, on the heavy days, I'm asking my body to not be fast. I need it to take a really long time and I need it to exert a ton of force versus speed. I don't need a lot of force, but I need the muscle to relax and fire very, very quickly, which are two polar opposite ends. And so then from an adaptation side and from a nervous system side, you are, again, polar opposite ends. So when it comes to adaptations, I'm not getting optimal adaptation either way. I'm going to get some, but I'm not getting the most I could out of a day. And I think a lot of coaches, there are are plenty of coaches out there that are uh, have that belief where like, all right, today is strictly power day from field work through weight room or speed work, you know, through the weight room, everything is aligned before that. I had never heard that train of thought. So that was really opening, uh, eye opening for me. 
but it made a lot of sense because then I am uh, solely from that nervous system adaptation side that I don't, I just don't want to confuse it. I just want a clear message for that day. Hey, this is it. This is all I need you to do. And then we can go on to the next one. And so on any day, I'm either going to pair strength and power work or power and speed work, or I can just have one. It depends on what your days, uh, what you want them to be. Now with the, when you're getting into the time sets, all speed work is going to be under 10 seconds because I need it to be high quality. I need it to be um, at our most intense level. Uh, strength work can technically go up upwards of, of 40 seconds because I'm getting into peak strength. I'm getting into capacity. I'm getting into uh, bodybuilding and that type of stuff. That's still strength work because I'm, I'm moving slow and that type of deal. And then our power work, I would argue is under 10 seconds, but yes, you could maybe go a little bit up into to the 20, but I think that's more of a submax strength work. I mean, you can kind of debate debate there what you want, but I still think again, power and power and speed work is under 10 seconds, but anything past that is essentially strength work and, and essentially capacity work. Um, so yeah, when you're breaking down your days, uh, I at least set it up to where I'm just going to pick a time. So let's say like week one, I can do 10 seconds. Week two, I do seven. Week three, I can do five. And then I'm just working my way, work my, working my way up in terms of times and weights and whatever. Uh, and I like to assign percentages for it uh, when I do that. And I just kind of base it off roughly where I want them to be at. So nevertheless, with, the, with that first 10 seconds, I'm working peak strength, peak power, peak speed. And then our capacity work, that next time bracket is 10 to 25 for the uh, lower tier. And then it's 25 to 40 for the upper tier. So if I want to build capacity for more peak outputs, I'm going to be in that 10 to 25 uh, range. And then if I want to build more capacity for basically the 10 to 25 range, I'm going to be in the 25 to 40 because whatever the, if I need capacity for something, I'm going to be at the next time bracket up from it. So if, all right, I need to handle more zero to 10 second work. I need to do more work in 10 to 25 to build capacity. If I need more work or more capacity in 10 to 25, I'm going to be in the 25 to 40 second work. So like, let's say on a shift for hockey, it lasts 25 seconds. Then I need to do more work in the 25 to 40 to build the capacity. Now, if I have the capacity and I need to, I need to reach the the peak outputs, then I need to either be obviously at the same exact technically same time bracket I need, or I'm less than what I need. So I can go at a higher uh, intensity. And then he doesn't, and obviously, like I said earlier, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about stuff over uh, 40 seconds because it's aerobic work, quote unquote. Um, but I mean, you can do you can do that stuff if you like. But I think that's I would I would consider that more the the bodybuilding super light continuous. I mean, Louis and Westside and them, I mean, they're doing five minute sets of whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that's yeah, something to yeah. think about. Yeah, the aerobic oh my gosh, I can't talk. The aerobic capacity part is, uh, you know, something that Dietz has always hammered yeah, with uh, his yeah. his aerobic 
sets. Um, and then as well, uh, talking about that shifting up and down, I was reading through uh, Brian Mann's APRE thing recently. And he does the APRE, you know, three, six, and 10. But he always recommends doing the 10 first and then the six and then the three. And then basically, if you are shifting, you know, one way or the other, but usually you would start with the higher rep first so that you have that capacity to handle, obviously, the uh, more powerful or more strength focused stuff. Yeah. And, and a lot of this, like, as you were talking, Ross, it reminded me of, I think it's a, a video where Cal Dietz is at Sornex, like a summer strong. And he's basically saying like, Hey, here's my block undulated model block, meaning this is all going to be eccentric work. And then here, this is all going to be isometric work. And I'm going to hold these for 10 seconds, or I'm going to lower for 10 seconds and really uh, consolidating the main stressors into specific days or two week cycles or whatever. And yeah, I really just think that we had all that knowledge out there, right? Like Blair, you just referenced Brian Mann's work and I just referenced Cal Dietz's work. Ross earlier, you mentioned Louie and Westside. I think the DB hammer stuff and the time brackets helped explain all of that at the neurological level, like what's happening to the brain and how is this functioning or working? Uh, am I am I right on that? Is that making sense? Yeah, the Brian Mann stuff. He took his APRE and built it out off of SIF's uh, stuff in super training, mm-hmm. his APRE. I mean, everything kind of comes full circle, I think. Definitely, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and when you're... Uh... With the with the APRE, it's kind of funny you said that, Blair, because I've been a big debate of uh, with our summer training for our high school kids. I've got like half of them that I've had in the weight room, and then I've got half that I haven't had in the weight room basically all year. And so, you know, this first week I was just kind of letting them fill out, feel out different weights, and and just kind of load up the bar how they like. But they're being super conservative about it, and then it's like okay once I get a baseline number and this is what I did at Liberty is one, when I get the first week baseline number, I just APREM from there on out and slowly bump their maxes up from there. Like with, I know with men's volleyball, I literally, they literally did five by five the first day or the first week. And then after that it was APRE, whatever, six, eight, four, whatever it might've been. And that's all we did all the way up. And, and just every, you know, every week bumping their max 10, 20 pounds, whatever it may have been. Uh, I think I just did 10, uh, the first and just kept, kept trucking with it, but being able to, to auto-regulate it that way, I think is probably the, I think it's the most efficient way when I don't have like this DB hammer basis is being able to do that, which was totally not, not what we were talking about, but I had to make that point. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all good. I, I I think what hopefully we're doing a good job of is, hey, we've we've read this this book which has these crazy ideas. We were all confused at first. Has different words to it, uh, concepts that kind of blended a lot of things together for us, but still confusing at the same time. But I think again, hopefully, we're all 
demonstrating a good way of how we do it practically, right? Like Anthony Donskov, you know, I, I quote him for saying, absorb, modify, apply. I heard him say that. We absorb all this. We have to modify it for our group of athletes, whether they're middle school, high school, college, or professional. And we have to apply it for our setting, whether we have six racks, two racks, 12 racks, and whether we have 20 minutes or an hour. So hopefully the the old listeners will agree that we're at least showing like a good practical way of how we're doing it. Like, hey, sometimes I just run APRE for an entire semester and that's how I do it. Yeah, makes sense. And I think it's important to remember with with this is everything, it starts with the time sets and then it's load after that. It's it's time first because time is going to be what the stress is. It's not going to be the load. The, the time is going to dictate where I'm at and what that stress ends up being. Because if I take 30 seconds on a set, it's not speed, it's not power, and it's not peak strength. So those are things, again, it starts with time and then I'm going to load after that. And I think that was, that was a big shift for me because then it led to, okay, on a, on a bench, I can basically do anywhere between one to 10 reps and I'm going to be in peak strength. I'm not actually building capacity per se, uh, but on a squat, I can really probably only need three, four, five reps maybe depending on the weight to be in the peak strength for squat. But if I'm doing, you know, eight, I'm probably going to be in the capacity range in terms of reps and in terms of time. And then deadlift obviously is going to be different. But the big point was if you're just writing a program and you're going sets of eight on everything an eight rep bench and an eight rep squat are just not the same. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Very good point. Uh, especially uh, sometimes it's hard to understand different exercises with time and how, how that could be a little confusing. So Chris, uh, because of your 1080 and your nice and detail oriented training, do you do any sort of uh, testing as far as figuring out if they're speed dominant, strength dominant, that type of stuff? First off, thank you for the the detailed compliment there. I sometimes I think I'm just throwing stuff on the board and seeing what sticks. But here here's my thing with the whether it's force velocity profiling, load velocity profiling, uh wh- whatever we want to call it or just testing for their neurodynamics whether they are more speed, power or strength dominant. It depends on the person on the day. So I've tested people on days and they showed this. And then two days later, they showed the other thing. And so that's another reason why I switched to all hand on hip jumps. So then I really take like technique out of the the equation. If you're familiar with an exercise, you're going to perform better on it. But yeah, I ha- I just have struggled with testing an entire group of athletes and then building out programs off of that. So hmm. DB Hammer has a few tests in his book and 
through internet and talking to other coaches, we've seen other tests that you could perform. But the main one that I've done and has been effective has been Cal's 1020 tool. I've used that with just a, a select few group uh, groups of people. And then it's somewhere in super training, I think, explosive strength deficit. So counter movement jump and then go down, pause and jump. I've profiled a few people that way for whether they need more speed or more strength. But as far as the DB hammer tests, I haven't done those. The force velocity profiling, haven't really experimented much with that either. Chris, can you tell me what the uh, 1020 is? Since I'm, uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> uh, I forget. Where, do you remember, Ross, when we first heard of it, saw it? I think you, I mean, I think you might have told me about it. But yeah, it's that sprint, but okay. it was because it was on the the website and you could just enter it in and it would tell you what they yeah. what they needed. And I know what my athletes said every time. Uh, Chris, what did your athletes say every single time that they needed? Yeah, so anytime I've tested anything with my group of athletes at Liberty, it said they needed speed. It said everyone was slow. Everyone was slow and they didn't jump high. That was a, a good reminder there, Ross, of, <laughs> yeah, when I ran explosive strength deficit, when I ran 1020, uh, anytime I'm doing anything, they're all slow and they need to get faster. Uh, but that kind of makes sense because up until, you know, this DB hammer stuff and I got bit by the speed bug, I worked on all strength work. Huh. I, I wonder why all my athletes tested slow, but uh, for anyone listening and Blair, you could just open up a browser right now and go to uh, performance made simple.com and I'll, uh, I'll log on there too. So just Google that performance made simple and should be the first site that pops up. And this is like a pretty wild thing. So Cal Dietz took years and years of data for a 20 yard dash with a zero to 10 uh, and a 10 to 20 within it. So 20 yard dash with a 10 yard split and then height, weight, strength numbers, uh, every kind of metric you can imagine, five, 10, fives, et cetera. And he met with, uh, I'm just going to call it a math specialist and they created this tool. So, with the 1020 tool, you plug in numbers for your sprint time or yeah, for your sprint time with some splits. And then it's going to profile you into one of 12 zones. So Cal's broke it out with, it's like four zones are speed, four zones of power, four zones of strength. If you need a lot of speed, you're going to be doing basically like his banded peak in method. If you need a lot of strength, you're going to be using classic triphasic um, super maximal loading. And every one of my athletes, when I've done this, has tested that they need more speed for, for the most part, right? You're going to have your rare here and there person. But according to Cal, that's how he trains now. He's actually come out and said that triphasic works, but it's more efficient to train this way where you run a sprint, check it with the 1020 tool, and then get the corresponding uh, 
protocol or workouts for that particular area. So it's, I mean, that yeah, that's a, a whole nother episode in and of itself explaining this, but it goes into such detail as if you need more speed when you're doing your plyometric work, you're going to be quickly you know, bouncing off the floor. When you do your strength work, you need more acceleration. And so when you do your plyometrics, you're going to have a much deeper knee bend uh, because strength, acceleration, deep knee bend, all those angles versus speed, top end, quick off the ground. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty good, but everybody needs to get faster. So that's uh, that's the rabbit hole I've been diving down for the last couple of years. Get them faster. I, I appreciate you uh, mentioning that website because I had looked at it once before. Okay. I don't know. I can't remember if the, the it froze. Like I remember he tweeted it and I was like, oh, sweet. And then I didn't get anywhere, and then I just like never went back. And so that's a good resource to have for sure. Yeah, it's uh, again, if you if you work at a, a university that buys you toys, uh, it's nothing that I've done. I just I've gotten super lucky. When you have all the data with the the ten eighty, and when you look at performance made simple, Cal has broken it out so much so that. If you're slow from zero to five yards in this 20 yard sprint, you're really lacking like starting strength and working isometrics is one of the best ways to do it. So you could run your 10, 20, plug in your zero to five as well. If you have, whether it's a system of timing gates or uh, a 1080 or whatever, and you could find out not only do you need strength, but you need isometric strength. And you could also plug in a five ten five, and then find out not only do you need strength, but you need eccentric strength because you have a poor change of direction. So it's pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Not to go down that whole rabbit hole. I know it's a, a DB Hammer episode, but um, Cal and DB Hammer. There's a lot of a lot of similarities there for sure. Chris, you haven't uh, talked but so much about your big takeaways from Hammer when you read it. Oh, so yeah. what were yours? So first I was very blessed because I got to see you read it, talk about it and do it. Like I, I, I wrote here in my notes of like, we would start working out together. I would finish, I would go shower, <laughs> eat lunch, come back. And you were still, <laughs> yeah, I haven't dropped off on these lateral hurdle jumps yet. <laughs> and it was just like, Holy, this is long. And it was the worst. I was really lucky. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was lucky to have that. And somebody sent me uh, basically like the DB Hammer dictionary. So I was able to kind of rip through things. But as we were prepping for this, I kind of thought of what are my big three takeaways. Uh, big takeaway was auto regulatory training. I think we could definitely deep dive into that. And Ross, you give a great overview and some practical stuff with that. Uh, my other big takeaway was the nervous system. Um, just copying and pasting, reading from the book here. The nervous system is what is responsible for sport carryover. So if we're not training the nervous system in the weight room, we're not training transfer. We're not carrying over the weight room onto the field, the court, the the, the grass, whatever. And so 
auto rank training covered that a little bit nervous system and then you mentioned it earlier ross the the static spring i i tell the story but when i read about the static spring and i took notes on it i literally turned to my wife Chantel, and i was like i understand everything now i totally get it i'm the smartest like human and i get sports performance and so to go into a little bit of detail on that when you hear static think strength when you think when you hear spring think like bounce tendon elastic reactive or speed so I always use Russell Westbrook as an example. I was a huge fan of him when he was on the Thunder. And he could drive down the middle of the lane, two steps, plant his leg, and go up for a massive dunk. And what allows him to do that is his static, which allows him to spring. Okay. So when you're going to jump, whether it's off one foot or two feet, you're going to plant into the ground. And in that split second, you need incredible stiffness in your ankle joint, your knee joint, and your hip joint. So you need all your muscles to coordinate, sync up, and squeeze those bones to stop them from moving. Right. So that's that static portion. So when you hear static spring, when you hear static, think strength. You need to have remarkable strength to lock down your ankle, knee, and hip joint. Once you lock those joints down and nothing's moving, all that force from your foot colliding with the ground is going to get stored up in your tendons, the spring, and then you explode, right? So your tendons are elastic and those get loaded and those get loaded like a spring. But if you're losing, uh, you know, your your platform, so to speak, because you're deforming at your ankle, knee, and hip, and you're not strong enough to withstand that force, you're not going to get the same spring effect. So when you go to jump, when you go to dunk, when you go to do anything, your strength keeps your joints static, which allows your tendons to spring. And that's why fast people are fast. In that split second, they're so strong, everything gets loaded up and they could just explode. That's how you have the the skinny guy who's either really strong or really fast or can jump super high uh, versus the big, strong, beefy dude who can't do that because they're not strong enough to immobilize their joints at the right time to then spring. And that to me was like, oh, I get it now. Like I, I understand why we need to get strong. I understand why we need to work on uh, reactive plyometric type of training. I understand why we need stiffness in our joints, why we need uh, mobility to get in the right positions to get stiff. It all super, super clicked for me. Static spring, that was massive. It was huge. Chris, that was a great explanation. Do you remember uh, at the NSCA conference uh, listening to Dietz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, he, it was he a had a packed house. I remember that. He had a slide, mm-hmm. and I can remember it in my head. Yeah, with the springs on it, and he was basically talking muscle and tendon, mm-hmm. and the springs 
you know, a lot of times, you know, that muscle spring is way too big and then the tendon spring is small and you end up, you know, either performance is bad or you end up injured. Whereas, you know, if the springs are the same size for the tendon and the muscle, boom, now we're talking performance. Exactly. And with interns, I kind of use that example all the time too of like, hey, you can't neglect anything. It all needs to be trained uh, and it all ties into each other. And the example I give, and I'm pretty sure I just stole this from Cal, is when you have guys who go to the combine and train for the combine, they're doing all sprint work. They're doing all plyometric work. And so they're really training their tendons. And so when you're doing all this speed and all this plyometric and all this jump training, strengthening your tendon, you're overloading that tendon spring. And what are you going to, you know, tear apart? You're going to tear apart your muscle, right? So a sprinter will pull their hamstring. And then on the flip side of the spectrum, you have uh, people who just do a ton, a ton of muscle work. And what do they tear? They tear their tendons because their muscles are so big, right? They tear their bicep tendon. They tear their pec tendon. Um, so yeah, you're, you're exactly right where you need to be training the muscle, which keeps our limbs from, you know, deforming and losing force, losing that static. And we need to be training our tendons with sprinting and jumping and hopping and reactive work. Uh, elastic work and that trains the tendons which help us jump right look at michael jordan's calves not very big dude could jump through the roof right he has that ability to instantaneously squeeze and lock down his bones because of his muscles which then allow the spring the tendons the ligaments the fascia to explode and be be what makes him jump and be super elastic-y and dunky. Yeah. Hmm. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. Static spring. Got to be strong. Got to be uh, reactive. Got to be elastic. Got to have good tendons, ligaments, and fascia. And those are those are our springs. I think the, the last point I'll make is, and I told, I just like, had a had a flood of re- remembering things from the book is I yeah. totally forgot how uh, within uh, strength work, power work, speed work that that was also then broken down into the specific types of movements to do. Uh, whether it's reactive, whether it's ISO, you know, uh, oscillatory ISO, whatever, like it broke down into all that stuff. And I totally just forgot about that until about two minutes ago. And yeah. that's a whole nother topic for another day. But I think a key point as, and I thought about it as you're talking about static spring is that always remembering that ISO work is strength work and yes. that's and power work is obviously moving. Speed is moving. But if I'm doing ISO work at the end of the day, it is strength and I can use it for either peak strength. I can use it for capacity. I can do it however I want. And it's important to remember that with ISOs, I'm legitimately getting 10 seconds of tension, 20 seconds of tension Mm -hmm. where if I'm just doing reps, you know, I might do 10 reps, but it's not the full time isn't all under tension, right? I might only get a couple seconds of actual tension. 
Uh, but yeah, I totally forgot about that <laughs> until just now. No, it'll be, uh, I think that's a great uh, segue to what's next. And I believe it's called the prime anatomical position and like the uh, like maximum joint configuration, just something, something along those lines. But yeah, I definitely think that's a, a good place to start next time where going, obviously I knew about isometrics. I understood it. I, I remember Louis Simmons talking about it. I've done Travis Mash and Chad Wesley Smith squat cycles where I paused in the bottom, obviously Cal Dietz and his cycles through triphasic, but reading through Chris Corfist's stuff and DB Hammer's stuff was the first time I really started to understand. All right. There's something behind these isometrics. There's something behind getting strong in the weakest position in the bottom, uh, oscillatory isometrics, reactive isometrics. Yeah. That, uh, that'd be a good area to start to dig into next time. Ross, any other thoughts? No, there's too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. Blair, any uh, final thoughts or anything? Uh, I'm just glad that I was already gone from Liberty when Ross started that training program. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, it was so yeah. bad. It just by myself. It was it was bad. It was not good. Like, Chris would just pop in. I'm just like, just don't talk to me, man. I got like 20 sets of sit-ups to do. <laughs> what, and then I just what, stop. When we get... When we got into it, was was that before or after I got sick? Like, was I still before. weightlifting? Or I thought it was before. Okay. Yeah, it was either. Uh, yeah, I was probably still weightlifting, which uh, probably saved me. You My, were. Uh, it was like right at the beginning. Like you weren't feeling good. Oh, okay. You you were toward the beginning of it. Making, yeah. Making the shift to to the ill ill side of things. Yes. Uh, yeah, good good times. Well, hey fellas, I uh, I thought that was a good good little episode there of just kind of the the overview and some of the big takeaways we had from uh, DB Hammer and kind of recapping all the big people who led us along the way. Uh, hopefully, next time we could dig into a little bit more of it, and we'll see uh, how many episodes or how many uh, good conversations we could keep having based off of this material and kind of see where things go so nice that was a good uh good recap old dietrich Booten schultz and how he's kind of made a impact on us whoever he is and wherever he is